This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of True Crime on Easy Street. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Kelly Turner. I'm not a doctor. Scott, I thought we were going to hear the whole song before you got going there. <laughs> I wanted to wait to make sure that we were all on the same page. You know how it happens when when we do these uh, colored uh, outlines that I like. I didn't fill in the first part, so I was going to wait and let you guys jump in and do something crazy there. Well, but... your color is first on the paper, so I just assumed you were going to take that. So yeah, but there's this at thing other. at the top. We have to do our introductions and our shout-outs yeah. and our housekeeping, so that, I did mine. That is absolutely not color-coded. That's so no that part knew. is not, and I apologize. Yeah, no, just I'm just kidding. Anyways, should we start over? Just, no, no, no. Is it too late now? It's too late it, now. We're, we're in here. this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we jumped in the deep end with both feet this week, big time. Yeah. Um. All right. So I introduce myself. Oh, I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I already Kelly I, did you already okay? Yeah, see, I've completely yeah. lost track. So all right. So there's a reason why. We're a little discombobulated today because we didn't do this last week because Katie was on vacation. So the week before, we did two episodes, and the one that you guys heard last week, which was about Andrew Little, is that right? Did I get his name right? Yes, Samuel Little. Samuel Little, I'm sorry. I knew I was going to get that wrong. Yes, like I'm... Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the reason that, that we're, we sound a little rusty is because we didn't do this last week because Katie was on vacation, and we do that sometimes to accommodate each other. Yeah. We'll record two on a Monday and then have the next Monday off. And so we were all off last Monday. We were. Because Katie was in Orlando um, at Universal Studios. Yeah. Tell us about your trip briefly, please, ma'am. Well, I'm a huge Harry Potter person. If you've ever met me, you know that, I guess. And then one of my best friends is a huge Harry Potter person. And then we took another friend who knew nothing about it. So oh, that, that had to be fun. fun, though, to drag somebody. Yeah. Did, did she? Did she like it when she... Found um, out about all of it? I guess. <laughs> she had a good time. Um, she asked us if Dumbledore was a house elf. Okay. And then she asked us, is everyone there going to be waving those swords? And we were like, you mean wands? Yeah, that's, that's not Get really a the lingo sword. correct. Yeah, so we gave her a hard time all week. And then I guess she was kind of giving us a hard time back. Maybe know. you should have given her a copy of J.K. Rowling's book, uh, Harry Potter and the... What was the first one? Sorcerer's Stone. The Sorcerer's Stone. Well, if you... Uh, if, if you're you, the British version. The, uh, nope, that's the American version. Okay, my bad. Mm-hmm. See, I always get that backwards. The Philosopher's Stone. Philosopher's yep. Stone in Europe, yes. in England. But okay. she, um, my friend Brooke begged Allie to, she's like, will you please promise me that when you get home, you'll start reading the books? And she was so like... So Brooke is your friend who is also a fan. Yes. And Allie said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. She's like, I'm not even going to bullshit you. I'm not worried. No. Not even going to do she it. She just needed a weekend away from home, and you guys yeah. were her best option for that yeah, weekend. Yeah, we're all, um, you know, the three of us friends who don't have little kids at home. Gotcha. We can leave, so we just uh, took mm-hmm. off. And yeah. before we get to the show, uh, 
Katie and I know this. Kelly doesn't. Oh. I'm about to surprise you a little okay. bit. Oh, so I'm, there was an episode over the weekend where we talked to some folks who were in local law enforcement, and apparently one of us had a run-in with the law recently. I don't. And <laughs> uh, I, was, I was, I promised someone that I would ask about this on the show. Oh what would you like to gosh. tell about it, Kelly Turner? <laughs> what do you have? Um, I am a mediocre journalist, but I do have reliable sources. God, the one week yeah. you're good at your job. Bingo. I know, right? Gosh. Okay, so um, I was coming home from work one day. At what speed? Uh, <laughs> 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 I I want to say like 71. Mm. I think it's one. It was it a 71 mile an hour zone? Um. We don't, we don't have those in Alabama. That's so, where no, I was going with it. It was not. Okay. Uh, the, I think the um, speed limit on that road is 55. Hmm. And I see. It's too much. Yeah, I see blue lights. And I'm like, oh, shoot. And, and here's, Is that what you really said? Um, maybe. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I just renewed my driver's license and they have not mailed them to me yet. And I had the same thing, right? We have the birthdays close together. Same yeah, thing with me. If I get I, pulled over, I haven't. I had it on my phone, but yeah. it's like, oh crap. Um, and uh, is that an acceptable form of ID now? Well, at a bar, they said no. Yeah, but the temporary printout but, that you uh, but get, but the state will recognize that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, turns out I didn't need it. The person who pulled me over already knew who I was. Ah. <laughs> Out of the vehicle walks. Go on. You want to? Tell I don't know. Story? I don't. I don't think that the person who told me the story is the person who pulled you over, and I'm sworn to secrecy oh, there. Okay. I, everybody at the sheriff's department knows about it, <laughs> so that's. I heard it like third or fourth hand, but I'm not going to say anything else. <laughs> and he said, um, "Going a little fast today." I honestly don't know that I knew that a sheriff's deputy was worried so much about speed unless you were like knocking over mailboxes and there's a cloud of dust behind you because you're going so much faster than the speed limit. Maybe that's what was going on. Well, I was, again, Who seven, do you think worries about it then? Well, just like local, the the, the state troopers and I the local he, police he officers. Probably, but, well, if, if you pass, well, or you come up on them on there. I didn't pass him going uh, that fast. Okay. I didn't even realize I was coming up on law enforcement until I saw the blue light. Well, that's always the way, right? Yep. And uh, so I was like, oh. yeah. So I really didn't know how fast I was going. Um, but I we just, all know now. So your new nickname is 71. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgot that we knew this. And when you were brought it up, oh, I thought, no. I, don't, I don't know. I've been sitting on this. You ask Shane, I've been nervous. I've, I've been sitting over having a drink with Shane before the show started today, and I've been nervous about today's show because I wanted to make damn sure that I did not forget to bring this up, and I was so scared that I would, and we yes. would get through the intro, and I would have forgotten because I yep. wanted to make sure that I put you on the spot he, uh, a little bit. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, Happy yeah, birthday. I know. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, he uh, just said, you need to slow down. And I said, yes, sir. And he was and right. And he, he was right. Yeah. He was right. All right. One last thing before we get the show started. So uh, we're sitting here on the uh, Easy Street campus in Center, Alabama. We are. Near Weiss Lake. If you don't yep. know where we are, you, that's an easy way to find it. 
Uh, Duke's Alley is open next door now. Finally, we've got the bowling alley open. Uh, in addition to all the fantastic steaks and baked potatoes and salads and things that we have over at Easy Street, we now have pizza, corn dogs, really good hamburgers. Hot I mean, every, dogs. Everything's so good at Duke's Alley. And we've just gotten the thing open, but the food's been a big hit so far. So come and see us. Uh, spring break's just over. There was a big crowd in last week, and it's going to be a great summer, but things are happening here at Easy Street. They are our primary sponsor, and we're just really glad to be affiliated with them. Aren't we? Yes. Are we? I don't know. You guys we tell are. me. I mean, we have to say yes, because she is part of the ownership. <laughs> Who is so she? She would be Katie. Yeah, you're pointing. I'm sorry. I forget that we don't have cameras in here sometimes. And you know what? I'm going to talk to Shane about that soon. <laughs> we'll have cameras in here before you know it. Um, we're very glad to be a part of Oh, certainly. Easy Street. Yeah. And the campus and the, and the bowling alley of we have visited the bowling alley and the arcade. Did you bowl? Would you like to tell me what your score was? I honestly don't remember. So not good. <laughs> I really don't. Mine remember. either. I'm terrible. Let's uh, <laughs> let's move along. Okay, guys, it's time to do true crime again. Okay. Are we have we got everything out of the way that we needed to do. I think so. All right. I think so. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but this case really was one that I struggled with to find the right way to approach from the start. It was my turn this time, and I, I didn't really know what to do initially. Because the tale of H.H. Holmes has been told by so many people for so many years in so many different mediums that it is hard in a lot of areas to speculate or to separate, actually, the fact from the fiction. Remember, this case took place in Victorian-era Chicago in the late 1890s, so it has been a while. Mm. Well, and the story of H.H. Holmes has been told many times through the years, and unfortunately, it starts to seem similar to the story your grandpa used to tell about, you know, the big fish he caught in the lake back in the late 90s. It just keeps getting bigger and more outlandish every time. That's the story of the story of Henry Howard Holmes through the decades. And it's been a long time since my grandfather told any old fisherman stories, but I get your point. So here we are again, your local team of experts, and we are going to... I am not saying this fishing pun. All right, fine. I was trying to do a fishing theme, but you know what? Do what you want. I don't care. Scott outline today's <laughs> show and you know what since you put me on the spot forget your fishing puns wow <laughs> i didn't see that one coming but that's what so, i get so here we are and this is the first of a two-part series about a man in chicago who many true crime fans sorry <laughs> consider the country if you just stuck to the outline just start over <laughs> <laughs> damn it okay So this is the first of a two-part series about a man in Chicago who many true crime fans consider the country's first ever serial killer. This is the little man born to to loving parents. God, I can't do this. All right, hold on. Is it too much? Blah, blah, blah. Serial killer. All right. Maybe the color is bad. I'm talking about the fiendish little man born to loving parents in May of 1861 as Herman Webster Mudgett. Today, we know him as Henry Howard Holmes, or H.H. Holmes. Technically, the jury is still out on exactly how many people the man who called himself H.H. Holmes murdered and disposed of before he was captured in Boston. The exact number I have seen most often is nine victims, but we'll mention them all before we finish the series. Unfortunately, Holmes was convicted of only one of those murders, but he most likely committed many more before the Pinkerton Detective Agency caught up with him in November of 1894. So Holmes committed a multitude of crimes before he was captured. We all know that. Assuming you believe 
the over-sensationalized stories the nation's yellow journalists were churning out in their Victorian-era newspapers at the time. We're not saying we believe everything we've read, but the laundry list of crimes committed by H.H. Holmes includes, if you believe what you read, grave robbing, mail fraud, insurance fraud, tax evasion, grand larceny, bigamy, kidnapping, and of course, murder. And that's a lot. So let's get started. We want to uh, quote... Real in this by now colossal largemouth bass hat. Oh, I used I, I did not think you were going to use that line. That's directly circa Scott Wright, Sorry. 2022. <laughs> and I think I think most listeners are most interested in the murder, and we'll get to that. But I think right now it's time for us to go back to May of 1861 in a town called Gilmington, New Hampshire where Holmes was born. So one of the commonly told stories about Herman Webster Mudgett, as his mother named him, was that he was cruel to animals as a child. So you might expect this from someone who turns out to be a serial killer or a sociopath or a psychopath, whichever you refer to them. Kelly, is that your professional diagnosis? (laughs) Um, I would say that that is very, very common. Uh, today, we call that antisocial personality disorder. There you go. And uh, being cruel to animals is definitely a red flag. Mm-hmm. But was he really cruel to animals? Like, was Is that a story that's just been told through the ages, or was that true? Actually, his mother once said that he was very kind and loved animals. Um, there is an incident from his childhood that definitely affected him for the rest of his life. When Holmes was five years old, so the story goes, A couple of classmates dragged him into the office of the local doctor there in Gilmanton and shoved him into the face of a full articulated skeleton hanging in the office that his little friends already knew uh, he was deathly afraid of. But instead of further frightening Holmes, he actually became intrigued. So um, he's looking at the skeleton and it actually kind of, hmm, Starts the little wheels turning. Yeah, a light goes off. Yep, and so he's intrigued by the study of medicine in general and the details of human anatomy in particular. But as far as cruelty to animals, um, that's not, according to his mother, that's not really true. Hmm. That's the exception that proves the rule, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Hmm. Well, I feel like uh, him liking the dead bodies is probably going to, come back around right that's gonna be a problem yeah how about if we get back to that right this instant because we're gonna skip ahead a little bit but holmes's next stop is wait for it medical school he's a young adult now matriculating at the university of michigan his college address you ask 15 cemetery street Ooh. well one of the stories that gets told about this time in ann arbor is that he took part in the practice along with his other classmates he didn't do it by himself but of removing freshly buried corpses from paupers' graves, which are, you know, poor people's graves that aren't really marked well, in the area for use in the college's anatomy classes. In fact, there was a term for medical students who conducted these raids for corpses, which were called night trips, and the folks who did them, uh, they were all referred to as resurrectionists at the time. So eventually, he climbs out of this hole in the ground, dusts himself off, and graduated in 1884 with a medical degree from the University of Michigan. Like I need another reason to hate Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> maybe some people will get that joke. Yeah, maybe. But um, uh, 
Uh, anyway, <laughs> the story about robbing graves is a common one you'll hear about uh, in the medical profession during that time because in it, this is decades after the Civil War. Yes, medicine wasn't quite what it is today. Um, so back then, uh, I think you had uh, oils and <laughs> prayer. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, it was not what it is herbs, today. It, maybe there some was leeches. So much unknown <laughs> yeah. about human anatomy, which is one reason why they went off into these pauper's graves and stole uh, freshly buried to corpses learn. to learn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they had to. Uh, and there was just no system in place to make sure that that happened. Mm-hmm. There was no donating your body to science option. Exactly. During this time. Yeah. Uh, and, and Holmes admitted this in his memoirs, and, and we'll talk more about those writings next week. Uh, but he claims that some of his first forays into the criminal underworld. If you don't count stealing bodies from if graves. If you don't count that, of course. Uh, <laughs> but the story goes that he and a couple of classmates cooked up a way to take some of these resurrected corpses to pull off insurance scams. And the way that it would work is they would buy a policy, they would fake someone's death, they would fork over one of these dead bodies, claim the money, and there's no guarantee, there's no proof that that ever actually happened, but that is a story that Mudgett tells later, sorry, Holmes tells later in those memoirs about plans that they had back in the college days to figure out some way to use these corpses. Mm -hmm. Well, we've definitely talked about uh insurance scams and things like that on right? this podcast Big time. many, many times. So this yeah. is not the first time we cover that topic. Okay, so we've established that Holmes is already exhibiting sociopathic tendencies. Namely, I mean, he's got a lack of conscience, right, Doc? Uh, I'm not a doc. Sorry. But, uh, <laughs> but um, so, well, and I'm guessing that this lack of conscience only gets worse, right? Well, that's true, Katie, because after Holmes graduates, he goes back for a bit. Uh, he goes back home for a little bit before settling for a short time, at least, in a town called Moores Forks, New York. And he spends time there as a doctor and a school teacher, at least long enough to make an impression on a fellow school teacher named Minnie Everett, who is quoted in Brad Selzer's 2019 book about Holmes as telling someone, quote, there is something lurking in that man's character that time will reveal. I do not like him. I firmly believe that he would commit murder, unquote. Goodness. I mean, she sounds like a prophet. Yeah, for real. (laughs) So did she ever say what it was about him? No, I don't think so. And there was, that was it. That was the only mention in the book that I, that I read, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people, not to get off on a thing here, but after this all happened and the story broke, a lot of people knew him through the years and, had things to say about him after the yellow journalists started sniffing around. So she taught with him. So she spent... They were school teachers in the same, I guess, you know, grade school. Okay. And so she... In Moore's Fork, New York. Worked with him enough and saw enough. That she thought he was "Mm, creepy AF, to borrow a term from last time. Yeah. Doesn't want... Doesn't... Yeah. Don't want anything to do with this guy. Mm. Okay. Well, while he may have done some minor swindling while he was in New York, uh, he didn't stick around too long there. This was a pattern Holmes followed for most of his adult life, with the exception of his seven or so years in Chicago. He would get himself into situations with his charm and intelligence, uh, earn some money, and then quickly head for the door. And until he started building his own multi-door dwelling in Chicago in 1890, Holmes managed to stay several steps ahead of the guys who tried to shove him into a very small room with steel bars for a door. 
which ultimately, like a caged bird, he would find himself occupying by 1894. Well, whatever else H.H. Holmes was or wasn't, he was a pretty sharp guy. Um, He was a college grad, a professional crook. He was a very good swindler, and some would even say a ladies' man. Case in point, from the time he was 17 years old, he was already married. His first wife's name. Well, first wife, like, are there multiple? Yes. Also, a bigamist, uh, Holmes, who is still called Mudget at age 17, marries a girl from his hometown in New Hampshire in Gilmanton. Her name was Clara Loverling. And she was with him for a time while he was a medical student in Ann Armour. But in another pattern that we will see from Mr. Holmes, um, he's married to his first wife. They get pregnant. He then moves her out of his place of residence and disappears from her life. Yep, you heard me. He disappeared from her life. What do you mean disappears? Like for how long? Um, Close to 10 years. So... She has their child. She's living with her parents in Gilmanton. And then during this time, Dr. Holmes is operating in Chicago. I see what you did there. But how in the hell did Holmes ever explain all of that lost time to his wife and in-laws? Well, I see what you're trying to do there, Scott. We can't get into that too much right now, but... It is crazy. I mean, he's just like, I got to go work. I'll see you later. All right. We'll forget about so they, that. So they get married. Yeah. And at 17 during these years, that's not, people would not bat an eye at that. Yeah. People died at 50 in 1890s. So you had to strike while the iron was hot, so to speak. And then they get pregnant. And I guess he just decides, I don't have time for this. Well, this guy's a fucking sociopath. Well, but. I guess he's telling her he's a doctor and he's he's got a job in Chicago and he'll be but, back. And and that's another thing. That title didn't necessarily carry the weight that it carries today. True. Yeah, I guess. Well, he was doctoring and teaching at the same time. That's yeah. No well, he would. did have a medical gr- degree from the University of Michigan, which was one of the most accomplished medical schools in the country at the time. It was the first university in the country to have its own uh, university hospital. So if you wanted to get a medical degree back then, that was the place to do it. And he did. Yeah. But he, when did he go to medical school? He graduated in 1884. How old was he? He was born time? in 61, so he would have been about 23 years old. So it's certainly not like it is today where you have a seven-year residency and so all of he, those things. Okay, so he gets married and then, and then leaves her and then heads to medical school. No, he takes her to medical school with him. But okay. when he comes, when he graduates from medical school, she gets pregnant, and he takes her back home to live with her parents, and then he goes off and does other things. And I love the way you said that, because I'm sure that's how he viewed it. She got pregnant. Sorry. No, 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 no. no I'm not picking. I on feel you. like I'm being I'm judged. Saying, no, no, no. I don't have any children, everybody out there. No, I'm totally, I'm, I'm sound like I'm picking on you, but I'm not. But it's okay. It's obvious that's how he yeah, viewed this. Exactly. Is, he well... Did. Damn it, woman. Now you're just going to go back yeah. and live with your with your parents because now you're a burden that I don't have time for. And that's a pattern we'll see that screws up all of his schemes that he has cooking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, yeah, that that's certainly a way that that uh, doesn't work out the way that it yep. was intended. So, we're in 1884. 
He's still going by Mudget, which is really, I mean, that's an unfortunate. Mudget is unfortunate. Are you going to tell the joke at the end of this paragraph? I don't know, Scott. Because you, you uh, haven't read it yet. No, I, I'm trying to follow your script here, but. Uh, it's an outline. He's still <laughs> calling himself Mudget. You put a lot of fancy words in an outline, fortunately. Um, so I, he goes through. For the next two years, he goes to different small towns. He's just scamming away. Um, and here's Scott's joke, everybody. He's dragging his family's name through the mud. Come on, that's hilarious. <laughs> Isn't it? I, I feel know. like we should have seen that one coming from Scott. We should have. Fair enough. Yep, 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 yep. Um, so what did Mark Twain say? Comedy equals tragedy plus time. And speaking of time, let's fast forward to 1886 and settle this newly christened Henry Howard Holmes at the scene of his greatest series of tragedies, the 700 block of West 63rd Street and Wallace Street in Chicago in a suburb called Inglewood. Holmes makes friends with the E.S. Holton family. They own Holton's Pharmacy at that street corner. Uh, That's right across the street at the time. And it was this large vacant lot. Well, and pretty quickly, Holmes worms his way into the day-to-day operations at the pharmacy. He establishes himself as competent in the trade, uh, flirts with all the pretty ladies who come in for the makeup and hats and pantyhose and whatever else you buy in the late 1800s at a pharmacy. Hmm. Holmes somehow buys out the Holtons. Uh, the details are a little bit sketchy. A little sketchy on those. But he's not a pharmacist, right? I mean, well, you had to be a a doctor, be just a pharmacist. The way that I read it, you had to be a doctor at the time to be a pharmacist. And I Ah, don't know exactly, and every state was different, but he had to go to uh, the Illinois State Capitol and take a test that allowed him to become the pharmacist. Even though he had a medical degree, he still had to go take a test to become a licensed pharmacist. Well, I mean, today, a pharmacy degree and a medical degree are not the same. But you don't, yeah. yeah. Correct. Um, so he's he's going to buy out the Holtons and get this pharmacy. Again, details are sketchy. He's going to run up a bunch of bills on the store's credit, allegedly. And then he's going to sell the place to another pharmacist and disappear. But he is still eyeing that big empty lot across the street from this pharmacy. Hmm. Well, he doesn't disappear, I guess, until he marries wife number two, a woman named Murda Belknap from Minneapolis. And I say wife number two, but he has never divorced or unmarried or whatever you do at the time, wife number one. Yeah, back to that whole bigamy thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the new Mrs. Holmes is soon to get pregnant. And in the spring of 1888, Holmes uh, takes her all the way across town and moves her in with her parents as well. Another similar Holmes tactic. Yep. and. They've recently moved to a distant Chicago suburb called Wilmot, so he moves her away from him. Yeah, lo- far enough away at the time. And so it's about the same time, though, just so you know something about how Holmes operates. He's got a mail-order business, right? So he's selling phony baloney medicines. He's got this formula that uh, supposedly reverses male pattern baldness, and he's got a treatment that's advertised as a cure-all for the overindulgence in alcohol. That's a direct quote. I'm wow. guessing... Neither of those work, Scott. Are are you a customer? I offer myself up to both of you today as indisputable proof that neither of those medical miracles has yet been realized. So, no, it was all total horseshit. (laughs) 
Okay, so now we're on 63rd Street. Um, we're back to this vacant lot. The fall of 1888, Holmes decides he's going to build a block-long edifice with a pharmacy of his very own on the ground floor. Right across from the old pharmacy. Right across the street. Right. Okay. Yep. There will also be a restaurant, a jewelry shop, and a few other storefronts. Um, and then while this is, is being constructed, this huge building across the street, everyone in Inglewood is talking about this. They are mesmerized by this giant building that is that is going on. Yeah, there. I bet. Um, an interesting aside on that is this is the same exact time in history when Jack the Ripper is working in the Whitechapel area in London. There are even like some tall tales saying that after Holmes is captured that he may have snuck off to England and committed those crimes themselves. So there is one theory that Jack the Ripper and H.H. H. Holmes are the same. Person. I think that's a lot of yellow journalism, and that's a, a big thing that was going on at the time. Yes, I've, I've definitely heard that before. And Scott, I know you know all about that. I don't know much about yellow journalism uh, or how that works exactly. Journalism in general, and I'm not going to answer that question because it might tend to incriminate me. <laughs> well, as not a lawyer, I guess that, that sounds like a pretty good strategy for you, Scott. Indeed it is. Back to the castle, as people in Inglewood uh, were beginning to call Holmes's new home, there was a basement beneath the entire structure. What was in there? We'll tell you next week. Mm. I know our listeners love it when you do that. Um, but... Uh, we can promise you that now you're not going to like what we tell you. It's, don't get mad at me. Well, I mean, you don't listen. Katie says we can't do anything. We, we're telling all the good stuff next week. Well, and you, you, you can't get mad when we talk about murder, mayhem, and tragedy here. So, yeah. yeah. If we're focused on this basement, yeah. nothing gets in the basement. It was 125 years ago. Give us a break. <laughs> it is funny, though, because Scott's usually the one who wants to spoil everything but i'm learning <laughs> we'll tell you about the other floors of this so-called castle as i would call it uh we'll tell you about that next week too but for now we can say that the building's floor plan basically looked like something out of a children's book illustrated by dr seuss uh the, we're talking about rooms with no doors doors with no rooms behind them a trap door in one of the bathrooms on the second floor stairways that led to nowhere hallways with sharp turns and dead ends a hollow chute down the middle of the building possibly designed to accommodate the dropping of large heavy we'll call it items mm -hmm. all the way down to the basement yeah and one more thing about the basement Holmes had this large furnace installed down there uh, very early on during the construction of this property Kelly how large of a furnace are we talking about exactly Large enough for a dead body to fit inside. Oh, I feel like that's a spoiler. Yeah. All right. No more of that. All right. All the, that's all of the teases we have for this week. Ladies, I promise you, I will be back next week. If you'll have me for part two. Ooh, <laughs> jury is still out. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the Definitely. jury's out. Definitely. Uh, we're going to tell you all the details about the mysterious place. All of those uh, half-assed yellow journalists of the 1890s would eventually begin referring to as the murder castle she cut her eyes at me when she said half-assed yellow journalist yep i did sorry <laughs> uh and we're going to get into a few details about what life in chicago was like at the time that's a part uh, an important part of the story we think uh, we're also going to tell you about the very interesting details of the 1893 world's columbian exposition the world's fair of 1893 and if you prefer if you read eric larson's book or are familiar with the title it was called the white city 
And how the World's Fair possibly played a very key role in the procurement of however many victims may ultimately be attributed to A.J. Holmes. Um, and that is, I, I would definitely recommend that book that you were just Fantastic. talking about. Fantastic. Mm, a very good book. Um, and, and between now and next week, you should look up the, the building. Everybody Google Yeah, it. there's plenty of photographs available online. It burned down years later, not too many years later, but there's plenty of photos that will give you some sense of what that uh, murder castle, as mm-hmm. the yellow journalists of the time came to call it, right there is, at the yeah, corner. Yeah, he is constructing. Mm-hmm. This is, it seems completely random, but I don't believe that any of this involved in this construction was random yeah. in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, absolutely not. I wouldn't think, but the number of people that may have been killed in that so-called murder castle, some speculate that those numbers could run into the hundreds. Yeah, at at the very absolute least, it was an extremely dangerous time to be alive and well in Chicago because you might not be for long. The city was, it had fully recovered from the Great Fire of 1871. It had just gotten the name of the Windy City, but it but. It had become one of the most popular cities in the country. I mean, people were moving to Chicago from all over the country. It was busy. It was crowded. It was loud. And it was very dangerous. Uh, what? Okay, hold on. Everyday life was a madhouse in many ways. You're talking about that. Okay, yeah, I got it. I swear to God, she didn't read this one fucking time. Simple everyday life was a madhouse in many ways during this time, right? I would say so. If you wanted to meet your demise in an untimely fashion... 1890s Chicago was as good a place as any. And as a final tease, Kelly is going to leave us with this unsettling passage from author Eric Larson's 2004 book titled The Devil in the White City. Every day in Chicago, an average of two people were killed at the city's railway crossings. Their injuries were grotesque. Pedestrians retrieved severed heads. Streetcars fell from drawbridges. Horses bolted and dragged carriages into crowds. Fires took a dozen lives a day. There was diphtheria, typhus, cholera, influenza. And there was murder. Mm. 